This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi, this is Megan from Stories of Win, and I'm very excited to be talking today with Dr. Caroline Palavicino Maggio. She's a postdoctoral research fellow in the lab of Dr. Ed Kravitz at the Harvard Medical School. So hi, Caroline. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I'd love to start by first hearing kind of your neuroscience origin story, if you will. So could you tell me a little bit about yourself and how and when you first got interested in studying the brain? So I actually was always interested um, in behavior. I just didn't know that it was neuroscience that I was interested in. Um, when I was growing up, I lived in Manhattan, and Manhattan is like is, is actually very famous for having um, like a lot of pests like cockroaches and things like that. And when I was younger, I remember, um, like at night, you know, because the, they're nocturnal, the cockroaches like in our cabinets, when I would reach out for cereal, like all of a sudden turn on the lights and they would just like disperse everywhere. So that behavior of how they would sort of navigate, you know, the area and then also kind of um, go in like little sort of social groups, I would say. And so that that I was always found interesting, like, how do they know where to go? You know, how do they know, like, how to hide? How do they know, like, that I did turn the lights on? Like, how, how are they able to sense that? So these are things that I thought as a kid, I just didn't know that those were questions that a neuroscientist would ask. Um, so that's where I think my you know, real hunger for learning how behavior works, how how to how to how to like different creatures navigate their spaces and things like that. That was really, I think, um, where that came from. And then later on, um, I actually experienced a, a you know a trauma. My sister she committed suicide. And so for me, it was a lot because my sister and I would actually sleep on the same bed. We were poor. So my parents would have like we would live in a one bedroom and uh, I would always like we would have my brother, my sister and I and then my my little sister would sleep with my parents in their the one bedroom and then we would sleep in the living room. And so I was always sleeping like so I was very close with her um, until very late. And, and, you know, until, until she, she passed away. So for me, when, when she died, it was a huge shock for me. I was really not believing it. I, I just, I was in denial. I thought, I really thought someone did this to her. It wasn't her. Um, just because I knew Angie so well and I always talked to her and I was like her um, confidant, like anything like I would, you know, if we went to school and I remember she would wear makeup, she would tell me, do not, you know, tell, you know, mommy, do not tell her. And I was like, OK, I won't. So I would always keep her secrets. And she was really trusting of me of keeping her secrets. So when this happened, it was a huge um, blow to me. You know, like it was it was really out of nowhere. Um, and so, and my parents, you know, this suicide and depression, all these things never were uh, something that were talked about in my family. Like, I didn't even know what that was. I, we had no idea, honestly, that these things that people would get treated for stuff like that. Um, and so my parents, because they were so ashamed of the way my sister had died, that they told me to tell people it was a car accident. Um, because they were just mostly because they thought that people were going to judge us and then judge the way Angie died. And then also, you know, like trying to, because she was such an amazing person to like, 
you know, like they didn't want her them to put her in a negative light just because it's associated with a negative light. Um, and so that because I wasn't able to really mourn openly, it, it was just it was hard. It was it was really hard to go to school and just, you know, go as business as usual when you know, you're dealing with this death that you don't understand, your family doesn't understand, your culture definitely doesn't understand. And then also, you know, the fact that I wasn't even able to openly mourn for her, you know, whereas if she would have died like of brain cancer, then it would have been like this huge ordeal. And, you know, there's like a foundation and, you know, you know, these type of things. And so, you know, it's like, it's hard. It's hard with, you know, dealing with all these things. So, and knowing her, I, I was, you know, for my entire life, I actually looked, I, I remember not, I mean, now, now I, I was completely different, but I remember for when I was younger, like this, my entire, like, being was to look for some type of note that Angie would left for me, maybe saying why she did what she did. And so, you know, going through boxes and things like I remember, you know, always searching for something, some type of note, some type of scribbles, like some type of sketch. And there was, it was never, you know, I, I never found anything. So I, you know, that led me to understand, like, you know, to try to understand how the human brain works, like what, what would allow, like, what would, what is someone thinking at that moment? You know, like, there's like some self act of aggression, like the inhibitory thoughts of not doing that was obviously not, you know, that, that these are things that um, she wasn't able to inhibit at the moment and the impulsivity and things like that. So that led me, you know, to take a psychology class and then, then, you know, went on to neurobiology and it just like metamorphosizes like scientific because I'm like, okay, I, I'm not, you know, keen on the theories that psychologists, you know, were, were saying. I'm like, yeah, but I'm not satisfied with what you just tell me that I just I need to see it. Um, and so that's where my neuroscience, like, you know, um, sort of path came in. And then I just started really becoming, you know, so engaged in how and fascinated how the brain works, that a nerve cell, you know, communicates with another, another nerve cell. And then you have this output in behavior, like the circuit sequence, and then an output in behavior for me, is just fascinating. Um, and the fact that there's so much variability between individuals, you know, I find that, um, really fascinating. So that, is really what sort of got me into in, in, in into neuroscience per se um, was this you know the way to understand and try to make sense of what had happened and now you know after um, I remember so I actually took a neurobiology class in college and after that course I just felt so much better as to what you know, and I knew I was like, okay, so my sister wasn't in her right mind. You know, this was something beyond her control. It wasn't she was doing to others. Um, so that really helped me. So I, I didn't no longer need, you know, to, to this note like that. That's irrelevant yeah. for me now, you know, um, because I knew who she was and I know what kind of person she was. And she was always this type of person that would always encourage me, you know, to do what I wanted to do. And so she knew I was a weirdo and like, like cockroaches. So she would always say, you would definitely be a great at this type of stuff. And, um, you know, so I think that that, you know, belief in me is what has kept me going, you know, but I, I want, sometimes I wonder like how she would be like today, you know, how, how things would have have been different. Maybe, I don't know. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I think neuroscience for is is very personal for a lot of people, and you know, not 
not always so tragic, but I'm glad that, you know, getting into neuroscience for you helped you gain some clarity and insight into your sister and, and, and what might have happened and maybe and provided some added maybe inspiration as, as you've gone through. through yeah, definitely career. it has. And, uh, you know, the stigma that people with mental illness and this sh- like silent struggle is, you know, I think that that's something that people really need to you know, pay attention to because it's, it's horrible that, you know, you have to hide these things because the way, you know, the, like your perception of how other people will judge you is like such a huge, um, sort of influence on, on you as a, like, you know, I don't know, like, I guess as a character or, you know, or whatever, but, um, yeah, so it's, it's tough, I think, um, for people who do suffer from that. I think, I think now people becoming more mindful of things like postpartum depression and we're talking more about it. Whereas before it was like, oh, you were sad. Um, but now it's like, no, you're depressed. So they're, they're actually using these words, whereas before it wasn't like that. So, um, and there's a lot more, I think, um, sort of like, attention to it and things like that. So it definitely is as much, it has evolved throughout the years. Yeah, I agree. It seems like the conversation is really growing and kind of maturing in that sense that people are talking more about mental health struggles. And I hope that, yeah, for that, for people who who are struggling with things, it's not only is, does it have to be less of a secret, but I do hope it, as a neuroscientist that, you know, like what we're studying can provide some sort of solace or or comfort to people who are struggling with those things that it's like, oh, it's not like me per se. It's, you know, my something about my brain chemistry or whatever. And and similarly solace for the people around them, like, like, like you said with your sister. Um, Well, again, thank you so much for sharing that. And, and so that's so interesting then that, yeah, that this specifically this neurobiology course really like captured you in, in this regard. And so, so from there, was that kind of it? You were like, oh, neuroscience is my path. Um, and, and if so, then when, how, how and when did you start getting into to research um, specifically? So I actually, so this was, you know, so that was like, okay, this is really great. I love this stuff. Um, being a doctor, that wasn't really something that I thought about because it, it, was, it just seemed so foreign to me. And so mm-hmm. um, sort of like, you know, if you were to go to Hollywood, like how many people make it type of thing? Like that's in my mind. Like I'm like, wow, mm-hmm. that's just so it's just so distant from my reality that I didn't think about that. Although I did fantasize about it, you know, and it just I couldn't. Mm-hmm really see my, I couldn't, because I couldn't relate to it. I didn't know anyone, um, no one, you know, in my neighborhood, like my family or anything like that was a scientist or did that. I just knew of it, you know, from, you know, from movies and also from reading about it and having even the college professors, but even them themselves, they didn't do much research. So I just thought that those were things that are like, um, really, you know, out there that it wasn't, it wasn't attainable sort of, you know, career for me. And so when I graduated, I came home and my parents were like, "Okay, you have a college degree. You need to go go get a job. Um, And at the time was 2002. So what I did was I looked up in the in the help wanted as and I'm like, what can I do with a biopsychology degree? (laughs) And so I just kept I just 
kept looking through the ads and I remember reading some of the the job wanted ads and they were talking yeah. about PCR. These were terms that I was familiar with from, from my classes. So I was like, oh, okay, I think I could do this. Why not? Yeah. So then I just applied to all these places as a, um, as a technician. That was the only job I can get at the level I was, you know, with a bachelor's degree. Um, and so luckily, um, NYU called me actually at mm. where you are now. Um, and I worked with the parasitology department, which is right on uh, 25th Street. Well, it was at the time. I don't know if they're still there. Okay. That's very close to where I currently am. <laughs> the First Avenue. So it, it, it was called, the building was called Old Public Health Building and Parasitology. And the professor there was uh, Maria Suji. He's an MDP. He was an MD PhD there. And he had a, he was working on vaccine development for malaria and AIDS. Like he, so there was, you know, on 25th Street was parasitology and then 26th Street was um, Aaron Diamond AIDS Research Center. So mm -hmm. it was between those two. I, I was a tech for, for him. Um, he had okay. two labs. So that really, that was, that was like a major sort of, you know, throw me into like the big, the big dogs. And yeah. <laughs> been for myself because I had to teach myself. I was very independent. Um, I remember not knowing, like, I, I remember a student asking me, Oh, make sure you make, like, it was my first day on the job, um, at a big university, you know, for the, for this tech job. And they had asked me to make 70% ethanol, and, you know, and I remember, <laughs> I, I was like, what, how do I do this? You know, this is back when Google wasn't even readily available as oh much gosh, like yeah. not many people use google you know it wasn't something that you the first thing you thought of okay just google it no so i remember just like oh my god okay caroline i just have to pull it together i need this job or else my dad is going to kill me um and i'm deaf because i was sleeping at the couch at the time and i was like he'll definitely kick me out of the house so i just remember taking like 100 ethanol and water and just like sort of you know like sort of, i think i was just like playing around with it and i was like okay okay maybe that it looks like it's 70 30 yeah <laughs> like 70 30 I was like that does look like a 70 percent in height like you know the water I'm like okay let's do this and then I remember coming the next day and then the student was super upset with me because he couldn't light up his um like some, one of his petri dishes that that's what he used it for was you know to sort of to for his match like to hide it you know to sterilize one of his tools mm -hmm. and I was just like oh my goodness so it was bad it was a real and I was like well I actually don't know and he was just like and then he would put me on that spot and really try to embarrass me like okay you don't know math you know like do you know the dilution equation you know and I was just like what the heck and so I was like no but I'm willing to learn <laughs> so that yeah. that was a huge wake up call and and also it was immunology. So one thing I like there's something that I'm just like in awe is how different the language is. Like it's it really is a different language. Mm -hmm. Like when you speak to an immunologist or you sit in their seminars, they you know, they're talking about a whole bunch of different like innate immune versus you know, adaptive immunity, all these types of different and then the cells and you're just like what you know, in neuroscience, you don't you I mean you hear about some type of macrophages like the microglia, but you don't really they don't give you sort of like this crash course in immunology. Yeah. So that was a whole new you know, definitely, you know, like definitely different language for me. So um, it was quite, it was a lot of adapting very quickly. And then I had to <laughs> dissect mosquitoes for the salivary glands so that that's what they wow. injected in the mice. Um, that was just a huge crash course. I really had to, yeah, had to step up the game. 
<laughs> wow. wow. So, so, so coming, so, I, mean, I mean, did you, did you, did you like, like it then? then? I mean, you, you clearly went, went into really research. So yes, yeah, I, how did, I liked it a lot. I just didn't like how the pressure from, I, I think I was not in a toxic lab, but like my PI was great. He was great, but he was also always traveling. And so mm-hmm. the students that were there, there were MD, PhD students, um, he like in particular this one person he was just so toxic like he would you know he was like you know and and then I find out later on like okay you know and I speak to another tech from another lab they're like oh yeah that's that's common around here you know where you know they'll throw something like a beaker to the wall and like oh you didn't get this right you know so some aspects of the environment yeah were far from ideal but the like research or the yeah the research was awesome and like when I was alone and just doing my work on my own and just reading up um and not you know, being so sort of um, like under pressure of doing things that that mm-hmm. was a lot of fun. I really like that when I going down to the animal facility was like such a relief for me because it would be like away from. And I, I just like to look at, you know, like the mice and just I did a lot of breeding um, and genotyping. And so that for me was fun. Um, so you liked the research, uh, but you were doing more immuno immunology at the time. So then from there, like, did you still want to get back into neuroscience? At what point did you decide to go to graduate school? Kind of what happened next? So from there, I actually try to, um, you know, look more into immunology as a field. And then I was just like, some things I was just not getting, I was just not as, um, as keen on reading up on literature as I was with neuroscience. I just, I really gravitated towards neuroscience. I just found it fascinating and it was very motivational to read. Whereas with immunology, I didn't see really like, I'm like, I guess it was because it was working with malaria and then AIDS. And I was just like, I didn't really with malaria, it's sort of, you don't see it here. So it's like, you know, it exists, but it's not the same, you know, whereas I'm like, well, it's not as like personal. Yeah. Right. Whereas it's personal with the brain and also not knowing, you know, how, you know, so many things about the brain. There's just, it's really, there's so much still to be discovered. So that I found, Mm -hmm. I love that part about it too. Um, And so that led me to apply for a neuroscience related position. And I applied to the New York Psychiatric Institute. And so I worked Mm -hmm. um, actually in suicide research and looking and oh. I count, I did the stereology on postmortem brain tissue for about three wow. years or so. Um, yeah. And that was pretty cool. That was very cool because I got more of the imaging, that analysis side of things. Um, and I got to see, you know, different types. Actually, it was all, all kinds of brain tissues and just not human postmortem, but I also saw um, rhesus, like mice. So you really get sort of this contextual wow. um, vision of how cyto, you know, how the, the neurons are or um, you see them on the, like, for example, in the frontal cortex, you see like the different layers, you see the way that the neurons are, sh- are sort of the direction that they're, they're moving towards. You see that like readily on these missile stains. And so that, that was for me, that was very cool. So that I also learned, I didn't know any, I didn't have any background of that. That was just more of, I, you know, I took the job and then they just trained me, but Oh, that's really cool. So then, so then you were sort of back into the neuroscience field. I was back into the neuroscience field. Then there was a meeting that I learned about was the Society for Neuroscience. 
it was something that everyone spoke about, um, all the, the postdocs and, you know, the, the PhD students and the PIs. And so they made it, you know, it was just like, wow, this society for neuroscience just seems like, like, you know, this real secret society or something. (laughs) Everyone is talking about it. And it's like, a you know, it's like going to the prom or something, or, you know, like it kind of is, you know, it's like, (laughs) Oh, you know, you're going to, you're going to start. Oh, when are you going? You know, it was like, so for me, I was just interested, like, why? Like, okay. And then you hear all these things like, oh, you, you'll, you'll get to see every from people looking at this, you know, studying sensation all the way to behavior and you get this huge, you know, array of, of different topics to, to look at it here and hear these, you know, great talks from famous people. And I was just like, oh my goodness, this sounds amazing. So I, <laughs> I, I approached my PI and I said, look, everyone's talking about this society for neuroscience. And actually I didn't do that to my third year. And I said to her, you know, I'm, you know, everyone is talking about this meeting and it's just like I've been hearing about this meeting now for the third year and I know it's one in San Diego and I really want to go to it. And she's like, yeah, sure, you can go just um, as long as you, um, you know, take your vacation time and pay for your own meeting. She's like, you're welcome to go. Um, and I was like, OK, this is awesome. And that's what I did. And another actually also incentive for me to go was that there was some data that we had from monkeys that underwent ECT versus TMS versus like just regular SSRI. There was just some different um, numbers in neuron density. And so she said, if I can write it up in an abstract, that can be, you know, my ticket to go, but that I would have to pay for it myself and also take the time off. So that, you know... That's sexy to pay for it, <laughs> especially if you're presenting data. It but. was cool. I was just grateful for the opportunity. And I, I really have to be grateful for that. Um, the opportunity and, and actually the knowledge, you know, of, of all these things I didn't know about before. So, yeah, that, that's what I'm I'm mostly grateful for that for that opportunity. So that led me to go to this meeting and on my way to the meeting. Um, I sat next to this man who it was so nice. And we were just talking about science for the whole four hours. And so in the end, he's you like, sat next to him at the at the meeting. Or? Yes, I, saw, I sat next to the senior associate dean of Rutgers um, Medical School. And I didn't know that at the time until after oh, wow. we landed. Oh, on the plane. On you're the saying. Plane, yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> Wow, that's crazy happenstance then. <laughs> I know. So then he said to me, Caroline, um, you know, I think you should apply to a graduate school. You have great ideas. And if you ever want to implement them, you would want to start your own lab. And I was like, yeah, I wish, you know, that that would be awesome. And then so when we landed, he's like, yeah, your wish can come true. He's like, just, you know, apply for graduate school. And I was like, I can't afford graduate school. I can't take out more loans. And my dad will kill me. He's like, no, no. He's like, you get paid to go to school. And I said, what? How come nobody told me this? Um, And he's like, yeah, you get paid to go to school. It's the same thing that you do now as a tech. You can get paid and get a degree in the end. And I was just like, are you serious? I was just like, is this something that like everyone you and I didn't? Um, So many. I can't tell you how many people we've interviewed who had like a similar experience. Like, I can't like what? It's free. And I definitely I remember like that realization. It's just like, how do we how do we get that info out there? You know, yeah. (laughs) how do you get that info out there? Because could you imagine it's like. You're, so I could have had a PhD, so I could have been a tech the whole time, even at NYU, and come out, you know, later on with all this contribution that I did for these projects, you know, and come out with a PhD in the end. That would have been amazing. Then I would have, you know, also asked for authorship on a lot of the pa- So that's another issue. I, as a tech, you know, I 
contributed to so many blockbuster articles. But and I remember crying and like asking the PIs, like, can you please put me as an author? And they said, no, we have to put the chair. We have to put this person. It was like so political. And they said, wow. you know, we don't believe in text. You know, we pay you already to do this. Why should we put you as an author? Oh my God. Um, and I was like, OK, so then I just said, well, so they just acknowledged me for all the work. But if if I would have gone to someone who's been mindful of these things and sort of give credit where credit is due, I definitely would have had I would have had such a long bibliography right now. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, I've paid my dues. Like people tell me. Well, thank goodness you sat on the plane then with this with this guy because we're because so it just wasn't on your radar. Would you have just kind of continued teching? Do you think? Definitely. For, I definitely would yeah. continue teching. Um, it was definitely not on my radar. I didn't even know it could be on my radar. I didn't know it was wow. even possible. And so he pushed me to apply. And so and then I remember asking him, like, how much is the application? Because I I've just spent all my money on this trip. And he's like, it's free because you're a New Jersey resident. And I because you know, I lived in Edgewater, which is right across the bridge. And I was like, oh, OK, fine. Perfect. So I'll tell you this. I didn't even believe that I would get in at all. I, I thought he was just kind of pulling, you know, like I was just like, yeah, right. I'm definitely not going to get in that. I only applied to one school, which was uh, Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. And that's it. <laughs> and then I got in. And oh, then wow. I was just like, oh, my God, he wasn't lying. <laughs> so it, oh, that, and then so then I remember telling my my folks and they were like, you know, they were just like, what? You know, it was just a lot of emotions all around even my cousins felt the emotion I think it's just something that was very um it was kind of like a family sort of milestone for everyone even wow. yeah extended cousins like um yeah all kinds all kinds of people even people your neighbors that you grew up with you know when they hear that when they heard that that was like that was huge it was huge news so um and that was just getting in so for graduation <laughs> that was another yeah I was gonna say I can't imagine the, the party from when you defended <laughs> yeah it was a lot of people graduating um because it, it's just monumental it's a uh, like if yeah. you know for me like my degree is not just me it represents a lot of other things um, and it's more, you know, it's for my family. It's, and I had my son at the time, so it was for my, for him. Um, I took, it took a lot of time away from him. So I just, but I want him to learn by, you know, sort of by learn by role model, you know, and know that, you know, I worked hard to get to where I am and hopefully, you know, I, I wish that upon him as well. So that, yeah, so it was, it was huge. It was very big and monumental and generational and all kinds of things that came with it. Um, wow. That's amazing. Chills. <laughs> yeah, becoming like a scholar, you know, at another yeah. level. So I remember my aunt would tell me, she goes, pero you high class now. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm broke. I'm <laughs> <laughs> but I do have those extra letters in front of yeah, me. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, that that's so. Yeah, if it wasn't for Doctor Angolia, I definitely would not. I because you know PIs when you're tech, they at least from my experience in the labs I've been in, and it, I I don't blame them or anything, but it's just like you don't want to train new people. You 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 used to certain people. You tr you know, um, you have their trust, and you know you do work for them. You do good work, and they want they want to keep you. Um, and so putting, you know, these ideas in your heads for your leave, I think is, um, I mean, it's horrible. I, I, I know that's something yeah. I vow not to, I mean, to do, you know, as a PI is to net, to always tell everyone that they have an opportunity to go even higher than my lab and do even better things than I am. Um, that's definitely, um, something in my forefront that I will 
you know, have every time I interview someone like as a, you know, tell them, you know, what are the uh, sort of expectations? Like, what do I think uh, for them and what they would want from me? Um, and just and also give them credit, you know, and, and merit um, and scholarship anytime I can, because I know even if they were to leave neuroscience, it would still open up many doors for them because it's still a record that will follow you um, for your career. You know, whether you're going to business or not, it's still something, you know, um, so that definitely I'd be an advocate for for my all my trainees, even my techs or anyone um, that will contribute to any of the projects in any way. So that's. That's that's quite an amazing story. And did, did um, I forget his name that you said? But oh, did Dr. you continue? Gordon. Did you um, interact with him further when you were uh, at Rutgers? Yes. So he actually was the head of the Sloan P, the Alpha P Sloan Foundation uh, for Rutgers uh, for the minority oh, wow. program, and so he was really keen on minority uh, scientist development um, and sort and guiding us and helping us navigate this 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 world that we were not you know used to and also the language i remember he would coach us in presentations also what kind of questions to ask for what to look for in the data and ask questions for in the seminar he was really keen on making sure that we were all stars you know um and that when i mean and i mean that because he you know the grant that he he accepted from the alpha p sloan was for minorities that were accepted to the phd program so he disseminated that those grants and it was it was it was great to have this money because you can use it to pay for your rent or anything that you see that, you know, anything that will enable you to stay in the program, um, it was approved mm-hmm. for. So he, he was a really huge advocate and a cheerleader for all of us. Um, yeah. And then he retired, but I still keep in touch with him. Um, wow. And he's, you know, he followed, I, I always uh, email him and he, he has a house in Woods Hall. So I've, I've visited, um, but yeah, it's, it's been crazy, crazy, crazy road. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> what a fateful airplane ride that was. And, know, and yeah, such a, <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to hear more about your grad school, but I also want to get into what you're doing as a postdoc. Um, so maybe you can talk l- briefly about your, your grad school work and how that then propelled you into your postdoc work. Cause I'm really interested to hear, cause they sound like they're, they're pretty different, um, lines of research. Yes. So I'm curious sort of how you took that trajectory. So when I went to graduate school, I had a lot of independence already, like because I I was a tech for so long, um, yeah. I already knew how to come up with a, a plan, a scientific plan, like a um, and come up with a hypothesis, how to ask these kind of questions. So it really was not, um, it was not really foreign to me to take like ownership on any project because I had had already like sort of this um, already experience of doing that. So when I went to graduate school, I actually rotated in a dopamine, dopamine, like a dopamine lab that looked at, um, at dopamine one receptor and they were looking at the signaling uh, cascade of the receptor. And so I rotated there and then I also rotated in a gut lab. And so both rotations, I wasn't really keen on um, the projects that they were doing, although they were interesting. It just wasn't, I, I just didn't you know, doing all the background literature, I remember, um, like whenever time I did the D1 work, I would always read up on things on like psychiatric disorders or anything that was kind of sort of related that I think would really motivate me. And then with the gut lab with the same thing, like how does the gut, what does the gut have to do with psychiatric illness? So having those two rotations and doing my background literature, I found that 
what I, what I found an interesting question was, you know, how does antipsychotic induced weight gain happen? Because a lot of, you know, patients that take antipsychotics, they have this horrible, intolerable side effect of weight gain. And so they usually abandon, you know, they usually stop taking the medication and then mm-hmm. result in psychotic relapse most of the time. So this, so that really interested me because it was like a medication that was targeted for the emotional part of, of the brain. How does that cause all these metabolic effects? Um, yeah. So that led me, so I just, I got more obsessed with um, the brain gut access and sort of how that, you know, how can that play a role in this um, whole antipsychotic um, induced weight gain um, scheme. Yeah. So that, that really what's, what drove my, um, my projects there was really mostly taking stuff that was doing in one group, one lab and then in the other, and just coming up with like an interesting um, project um, which was, you know, dietary fructose since it has evolved um, in our diets and it has been known to have correlation with obesity and also and then these drugs that also that hit these receptors that are expressing your gut. Um, you know, could it be that they could be modulating through some signaling cascade, you know, the nutrient absorption? Could that then be contributing to to waking? So that became my thesis. Um, and then after that, when I graduated my PhD, my PhD was very, I did it uh, almost in four years. So it was very um, intense, I would say. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty fast. <laughs> so when I graduated, I wanted to focus more on my son and my family and also my, my parents. Um, and so I took three years off and it was mostly just to, you know, focus on just my family responsibilities and kind of gather and really think about what I wanted to do for my postdoc um, and how different, like what directions that I want to take that I didn't want to do the same as it, like my PhD. So one of the things that came up with was definitely not working with mice. So I just, mice are just so variable in, in so many different, and it's just hard to get a high end number. And so mm-hmm. that I just, you know, you read about these amazing papers on these model systems like C. elegans and flies that I was just like, my goodness, these make it to like such great impact journals, like how, and it's so, you know, it's like the reproducibility is so high. So that's where I wanted to go with it. So I was just like, okay, I wanted a model system where I can ask psychiatric you know, related questions. And so that's when I came across Ed's work with aggression. And at the time, my sister was actually here in Cambridge because she had got accepted to the master's program for design school. So I was like, okay, this is great. My sister's already there. Um, If I were to go, because at the time I also had my, I also had my daughter um, during that time. So I was like, I need help from my parents. So I would, um, I mean, they were always with me anyways, but I, I, w- I would need help with my parents because my dad was also having some type of um, like these strange symptoms like of um, what we, what now is Alzheimer's he was having. So oh. I knew I had to take them with me along. And I was just like, that'd be great because my sister would be nearby and then I can work on my postdoc. Um, and also my son gets to be in this environment, you know, in Cambridge. So then, so I, I came to Cambridge. So Ed said, you know, I got the art mirror grant, which is the art 35 for five years, you know, just, you know, he, he, he said, you know, come, come, you know, come right over. So that's what, wow. what happened. So I came wow, and then cool. it just, I just became, oh, and then like, so because, you know, the Drosophila model, like to go from mice to Drosophila is a huge leap. <laughs> so what I yeah. did was he told me about this Drosophila course um, at Cold Spring Harbor. 
And so I applied to the Cold Spring. But I, I remember being so I was like, no way I can't get into those classes, courses because they're really selective. And he's like, no, 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 apply, apply. You have a great, um, you know, your your recommendation letters are great. Everything is great. So you, you'll be fine. So I applied and I did get in and I was just like in shock because I didn't think I was going to get it because of all this. You hear about how selective they are. So I got in. And so that crash course for a month was by far the best thing I've ever done. Because they really, you do, not only do you get introduced to your model system, but you also get introduced to everyone who's the head in like um, various topics of the field. So, you know, the forefront of development. So you'll, you'll get to, you, you know, you get to hear from their leaders and because it was such a small classroom, you do get a lot of interaction. So it was great. And the fly community is so welcoming and they share. And so I, I just, I fell in love with that community. And I was just like, wow, this is awesome. And plus, you know, you get high end values and it's just cheap. It's not, you don't need iCook protocols. And I was just really, I fell in love with it. So, um, so from That's there awesome. actually is what landed my, my first paper from Ed's lab because there was, um, uh-huh. yeah. Cause so so Claire McKellar, she's at Janelia. She was at Janelia at the time. She came and she gave the behavior course. And when she gave the behavior course, there was one lot. She was just have, showing us what happens when, you know, you have trip channels. Um, there, were, there were these trip channels that like sort of the heats, like they were sensing heat, then it would activate the neurons. So you can you can see when the neurons are firing, like what is the behavior output? So we were sitting in this really like sort of like sauna room and just observing like, <laughs> all kinds of different groups of behavior. And there was one particular line that I was really obsessed with. And it was just, I saw this female, female um, aggression uh, fighting type. And I had already seen aggression um, fly videos because I was at least a month in Ed's lab before I went to Cold Spring Harbor. So I had already had some type of like briefing as to how, how, you know, what, what, sort of behavior you look for in the fly. So that was a huge, um, so it was great. I, I, you know, that was really like, it was really intriguing for me just to see that one, you know, behave like the females were behaving this way, not the males. So I, so I asked Claire, I said, Claire, do you mind if I take this line with me? I just started my postdoc and she's like, no, go ahead. Just let me know what, what you do with it. And that's what happened. And then I went back and then I just, yeah, just chopped up the whole brain and <laughs> through through screening and found these PC1 cells that were expressed in females and not in males. Um, and when you activate those, you see female aggression with female specific um, behavior patterns. Because one thing that you learn about flies is that male flies and female flies, they, they're sexually dimorphic in behaviors. So um, and usually what you know, they were, you know, in the literature for a long time, what they were calling aggression in flies was, was only actually for males. It wasn't, they didn't see oh. the same phenomenon in females. They didn't think it can go into high levels of aggression. So then I found these, these specific neurons that are for in females. So there was, so not only is there a sexually dimorphic in behavior, there's also sexual dimorphic in the nervous system, you know, like how it's, you know, like, I don't know how to say in limbus terms, like how, yeah, like, I guess how it's spread out, you know, or how it's um, laid out, the circuits (laughs) are different between males and females like that. That's right now, um, like one of the theories. So yeah, but that's that's, interesting. And then that led to um, our work, um, the PC1 work with the females. That's very cool. So was that the first, like going to that course and seeing that specific fly line and that specific behavior, was that when you first were like, oh, I want to study female aggression specifically? Was that kind of what set it off? Yeah. So I actually wanted to study female aggression beforehand. And that came because 
when I read all of Ed's papers, I asked him, you know, about females. I'm like, Ed, I noticed that, you know, you're all the subjects are males. Is there a reason why? And not? he goes, well, cause we see the, um, we see a much stronger phenotype with the males. Like it, it was very, but he's like, but I'm sure something is up with the females. We just haven't had the time, um, or actually anyone been interested in looking at the females. And I was like, no, I want to look at the females. So like the, the rebel that I am, <laughs> of course I had to reinvent the wheel. So, um, so anyways, <laughs> I was like, no, I'm sure I was like, I would like to, and he's like, I don't see why they would be different than the males. Um, um, you know, circuit wise, but you can go ahead and try. So, so yeah, so that was my background later. So when I went to Cold Spring Harbor and I saw this one particular line and I found it was like so fascinating. I was like, okay, this is great because reading the literature, um, they, they seemed like no one, uh, you know, was able to sort of delineate what neurons um, were responsible specifically for female aggression. You know, they, they kept calling it um, you know, all the findings aggression, but it was mostly male subjects. So just bringing that, you know, so I brought the fly line back and then I showed it to Ed and, you know, he made me do like, oh, I can't even tell you how many experiments to repeat to make sure that this was the phenomenon we were seeing. And uh, also taking like high speed video camera, like with 200 frames per se- or 300 frames per second and just proving to him these were headbutts, you know, these. And I'm like, Ed, and like people have a wind of this already. Like we got to. <laughs> I was like, I'm the only person working on this. Come on. Um, and yeah, and this was 2016. So that led. Yeah. So that led me to. Um, then we went after it with a screening. We have a screening where it basically just takes the nervous system and in the in, in the central brain and just it it uh, targets different clusters through this flip recombinase. It's um, like an intersectional study, and so you're able to narrow down the, the neural population and able to still you know. And if you see behavior output, then you can assume that those are the neurons that are responsible for that behavior. Um, so yes, yeah, so that that was my. A whole trajectory. And now That's here right. I am. <laughs> yeah. So where are you at with this work now? And what, what are you looking to do like moving forward? Yeah. I, so right now um, I am still looking at female aggression. I think that um, chasing down the circuit and seeing, you know, there's these particular cluster of neurons that are female specific, you know, is it, you know, what are the upstream and downstream targets? And does it merge sort of with the male circuit, you know, um, mm-hmm. or is it, is, is it completely sexually dimorphic circuit? That's where I'm at right now. And I'm also interested in how, um, what happens during disease in these circuits, you know, like, and not just, um, disease like in psychiatric, but also neurodegenerative diseases, like when there's actual um, the degeneration going on in the circuit with itself, how does that disruption uh, modulate behavior? How does that change behavior? So that's where I'm at right now. And that's where I got my K99. Um, and my K99 is mostly looking at that, like the disease aspect of, of behavior. For example, dementia, you know, uh, this was mm-hmm. an, a behavior of aggression that was not there it was not inhibited anymore as the person gets older because undergoing you know all these types of different pathologies and so that i find interesting so that's something that i'm i'm really curious about and also looking into um as well as the circuits so how do you so how do you start to look at how do you kind of bridge that connection to like looking at neuropsychiatric disorders when working in flies and what's sort of known about these sort of sexually dimorphic circuits related to aggression and in humans for instance so aggression is something that's conserved through evolution, um, through species. I mean, and so it's, you know, you need it for, 
you know, gather up resources, mates or shelter. And then there, you know, so it is necessary. The problem is that what happens when it's turned on in inappropriate times, like the, the behavior, the impulse behavior is not inhibited. Um, so that's what happened. This was reported for many psychiatric disorders like PTSD, yeah. um, sometimes even even major depressive disorder. There'll be like just one episode or one event, like one sort of impulse of energy like they'll have. And then, you know, it'll be an aggressive outburst. Um, I think first defining the circuit, how it works biologically, we still don't even understand. And then what happens yeah. when, you know, um, some of these neuromodulators that we know have been implicated in a lot of mental illnesses. Like what happens if you manipulate those in different ways that you can with the, the fly tool? Like how does that then impact um, the output of the behavior? Um, that That's like one way of, of looking at it. It's just, you look at the fly more as for the fundamentals. Like how is it, how could it be working? You know, this mesh work of, of neurons, yeah. how does it all work and come out with this behavior output? And so, and then can we take that information and then further um, look into the human, you know, into to the mammalian systems and, and so forth. So that's more so of how, we, you know, we use the fly models for, to look at more of the fundamentals, like how it is, you know, is it an excitatory cell, an inhibitory cell, um, or is it a peptide, you know, th these type of like basic fundamental, um, you know, sort of totally. parts of the circuit is what we look at and how, what happens if you were to manipulate those parts, which is, you know, um, been reported many psychiatric illnesses, like how, what happens into the behavior output. And even though the specific types of neurons or things are, may not be exactly the same in humans or whatever, you can, you can get some ideas about how it might be working and, and manipulations. Exactly. So it's more of the, but like the fundamentals. Totally. So what, a, so what are your kind of goals moving forward? You know, are you hoping to start your own lab or go in a different career direction? Like where do you see yourself in sort of two years or five years or, or so, that? Yeah, I definitely want to, um, I'm going to, I'll see myself opening my own lab actually May, 2022. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will be opening my lab at McLean hospital. And part of that is for many reasons. Number one, McLean is one of the best psychiatric hospitals um, in the country. And on top of that, I've also, you know, coming up with different ways that I could contribute besides just most of my basic science, for example, also cultural adaptation for the Latin community and how those type of prevention programs for kids with problems with like behavioral problems or kids that get into substance abuse or um, the other one is is gangs, so violence. So what happens is that there's a lot of disconnect between the parents and the child. And usually it's because it's cultural adaptation. Like parents don't speak the same language as their kids or they don't listen to the same music and they don't understand. So there's a lot of lack of communication. And thus that brings a lot of um, anger and issues and all kinds of things that stem and kids get into gangs and alcohol. So anyway, so this, all this... Um, culture adaptation programs is what I'm going to bring to McLean is to look more into the Latino population and how to, um, number one, also raise the stigma, um, you know, erase the stigma of mental illness, definitely, you know, with the adolescents and things like that. I think that that's really, it's going to be very relevant because if I would have had that, I think growing up, it would have probably avoided so many problems with my parents. Um, so many, you know, and I think that it could drive anyone, you know, to leave the house arguing or um, sometimes even like substance abuse, which is common. 
um, especially if they, if they live like an impoverished, you know, neighborhood. So if we can avoid avoid those type of problems and teach parents, um, not so much parenting skills, but more about understanding the American culture. Um, I think we think that it'd be like less headbutting. Um, so that that's one really keen reason uh, for going to McLean and also because all their background of investigating psychiatric illness and all the great work that they've done. So. Wow, that's so exciting. Um, congratulations. Yeah. So so it sounds like then you'll be having your own like research lab there, but also doing more sort of programming. Yes, like advocating, programming and advising on how to target um, Latinx population because yeah. out of so the Latin population is very difficult uh, to treat psychiatric. Like there's a lot of um, like like setbacks um, with with that community. And it's really mostly because of trust. Um, not understanding. Um, so that is something that I want to, uh, you know, convey into a lot of the different neighborhoods that uh, I'm familiar with, that I know have this sense of looking at psychiatric illness or getting treatment for it as someone who's local, you know, and it's just like, you know, trying to erase that stigma and just educate more my community about mental health and what what are the signs to look for, you know, when kids like are, are you like, could there be like a le- like a learning deficiency? Could there be um, something else, an underlying problem, you know, like anxiety or panic disorder? that um, that they don't immediately see or it's not really embedded in our culture, but that they should be mindful of. So these are those are the type of things that hopefully that I can launch as well over there. Well, that's amazing. It sounds like you're going to be such a powerful spokesperson for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's really, really cool. You said May 2022 then? Yeah, so May 2022, year? yes. In the spring. I'm so scared. It's so scary. <laughs> I really am. I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just really scared because I want to be, you know, I want to be a good PI and I just don't want to stress my students and I want them to want to come to lab and I want them to want to, you know, like their projects. And I think that's hard. You know, it's hard to really find a um, sort of like a even playing field where you can motivate, you know, everyone, but at the same time, keep up your productivity. Um, there's just, it, it's hard. It's tough, I think. Um, but I don't know. We'll see. I'll see how far it takes me. <laughs> I feel like just even having that, the fact that you're scared about that, you know, that you care enough to be concerned about that, um, on its own is already says a lot that you're going to be, you're, you're starting from a much higher baseline than unfortunately I think a lot of people are people, yeah. coming in at that position. Yeah, because I, I think of it as like adopting people, you know, like you're going to be yeah. responsible for them. Um, and we have responsibility, you know, it comes with a lot of, you know, like you have to be a role model for them. Like you can't have like a nervous breakdown <laughs> for your trainees, you know, I think all of that is, you know, it's just something that I'm just, I just keep thinking about like, okay, how, like, I want to also be, I also want to be, make sure I'm myself, I'm unique in a way that, you know, I want everyone to feel comfortable and included, you know, if they want to play um, any type, like if they want to play reggaeton while they're doing work, that's fine. You know, like I want them to to feel like, like them, like they're back home or whatever makes them feel good and be in lab and just love science. That's the environment I want to make sure that I create for them. Um, so yeah, so I think it is scary. It's just scary. And then you have to still have to satisfy like your bosses because they look at you like for productivity. But at the same time, you don't want to put your people through that. You know, at least I won't. Um, 
No. Yeah, I don't know. It's tough. It's tough. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Maybe in two years and you interview me again, I'll tell you how it's been. <laughs> oh, it, it certainly doesn't sound like an easy job, but, you know, it's were you considering other paths or were you like, no, this is this is what I want to do? So it was interesting when I was a, so when I, you know, as a postdoc, I've attended a lot of these um, workshops where they go around and they ask, okay, so what do you guys want to do afterwards? Who wants to go into industry? Who wants to come up PI? And something that I was always scared to sort of announce and just tell people my dream was to become a PI. I was really sort of reluctant to say that because I I thought people would look at me and be like, yeah, right. That will never happen. Like, you know, sort of thing, like kind of same way, like getting my PhD, you know, I I really thought that, you know, because you hear about the job market and how impossible it is that you need to have a cell nature or science and you have to be so a type, like one of these people, like get out of my way, you know, with K99, like, you know, you hear about all these crazy things and you're just like, oh my God, I'm de- I don't have, you know, I'm completely different from any of that. And so I think, you know, like learn, you know, just voicing it was very hard for me to tell people that that's what I wanted to do because I thought people would make fun of me or just, you know, be like, yeah, right. You know, sort of thing. Um, so that, I just, I knew in like in, I remember even talking to, to certain, um, to certain like trainees and telling them and they're like, yeah, right. They're like, to get that, you have to, you know, have a certain, you know, grant, you have to have a certain paper. Um, so, but I just kept it in like sort of my goal of what to do next. Like just, just completing everything, you know, that I think would make my application like a good, you know, argue, you know, like a very good app, strong application for a faculty position. And so part of my, I think my sort of my strengths is being so diverse in ever so many things, um, you know, having a lot of advocacy work as well as my science, like I'm passionate about both things. And I think that sort of sets me different from a lot of other postdocs. So I thought that I was like, you know what, that's my, my angle. And that's just, you know, what I'm going to just tell them, you know, if hopefully they'll like me, if not, not. And then, so I applied for the K99 for the mosaic and the mosaic became, um, was, you know, was, um, the mosaic was advertised. And so that mosaic was just like, for me, it was a godsend because it was, it was like, you know, this announcement that if you have great science, but also do great diversity work, you know, you're definitely encouraged to apply. So that it really gave me sort of the encouraged me to apply. And that's what I did. And so that receiving the K99 was huge because that already sort of sealed the deal. And then you're like, OK, this is now I'm definitely going to be into this faculty thing. Um, so I didn't really get, you know, when I was a PhD student, I remember graduating, I had three years to think about my postdoc, but when I was a postdoc, this, I really did not think I was going to be, I mean, I, although I was driven to do it, I wasn't thinking so much like, okay, it'll be in the near future. Um, but now it is. Mm -hmm. So, and now I'm here and I'm just like, oh my goodness. You know, another thing is too, is like not being intimidated to ask for help has helped me a lot. Like the mentors, um, like Ed has been great, but my mentors I've, I've adopted like outside of Ed is, have been phenomenal. Like, um, and the women, um, I, I would have to say like, have really just, they've done, they've gone above and beyond for me to open up doors for me that I've never seen. Like, I like, that's, I think that's what like mentorship should be like. So I, I hope yeah. to also pay it forward. 
I think one uh, thing I would say to any trainee is to sort of gather up as many mentors as you can, um, not just your own main mentor, but you'll have mentors all around that can, you know, that maybe women who you, who are in your department and you, you know, you look up to like, just, you know, you know, reach out to them because I think that, that, that has opened up doors for me and just seeing women in those positions and then telling you they're um, like sort of hot, guiding you like what worked for them. Cause some of them are moms, you know, some of them are not, maybe some of them just, you know, focus on maybe they're caretakers or have other responsibilities or haven't faced, you know, male dominated sort of, you know, scientific con- for a long time, you know, especially if they're older and they can tell you how they've navigated that and just not let them face them. Um, or how to, you know, like when you're in a lab meeting, like how to still be heard um, and not have the male person like sort of whatever they said is like taken um, as Bible. But what you said is like, dude, I just said that like now because he says it, it's like I, I think just learning that part of it. I mean, like, you know, just hear from other people, like other mentors is really important um, and, and just fostering those relationships really does make a difference in a career. Um, just to ha- you, as many people as like an army as you can, you know, I think I would say like, um, I, or community support or whatever. I'll, I'll keep it a, like one more sort of big question, but I don't want to not talk about all of your advocacy work because you oh said yourself God, that it's like not as important as all. So maybe that'd be a whole other thing, but. So some, so one thing that I've been really um, involved with is the Journal of Emerging Investigators, which is a journal for high school kids. And so when I first joined the journal, um, you know, looking at like reviewing these because it's a peer reviewed journal, like and it's really extensively reviewed. You should see some of these reviews are like sort of a little bit of some of them are ridiculous. I'm like, are you serious? This is a high school kid. But um, I think just seeing that process in, in itself was really um, was very rewarding for me. But also um, one, you know, so something that I raised with them was that I noticed that a lot of the, the students that were publishing were either kids of parents that were scientists or um, kids that were connected through either like some of these elite schools. So I, you know, and just putting myself in my, like when I was younger, like how, you know, I, I think an opportunity like that could really open up so many doors for kids, and especially mm-hmm. since it's, it is a free journal. Like, so one of the projects that I, um, you know, worked on with a, a graduate student and a teacher, actually a local teacher, was to start a program um, where it was like a mini PhD camp where it brings the student from, you know, their first generation, nobody in their family is a scientist or even, you know, even college, um, that college graduate or anything like that can have this um, exposure to a scientific project, come up with a hypothesis, and then later on publish in this journal. So sort of playing the same role as a parent would, as a parent scientist, but for, yeah. for kids, you know? Um, so this the, so this program has been really amazing to see kids like, engage and then also, you know, have them look at how peer review works and also teach them about, you know, the the like any type of statistics they hear or any novel me- medication that they hear on the news, like how to, how to take that and just be critical of that information. Like we teach them how to go to PubMed. We teach them how, where to look, how to look for controls in those projects. So these are things that are like, you know, really important um, sort of resources that a student that is really interested in science, you know, can have as a sort of like a head start in it. 
um, and just really open up doors, you know, just to have this publication, you know, I published, you know, when I was in high school that can help their resume, you know, a long way for college, especially for these kids. And it's been going great. We've been trying to raise money for it. So that's, that's another, it's like how to, um, you know, and it's really, honestly, it's more about having kids get their receipts because you, you, know, you hear about all these programming for minority kids and this and that. But at the end of the day, you check in, you attend the workshop and you leave, but you don't leave with any proof. But mm. this allows them have a publication that follows them. You know, that that was my goal for them to to, ha- to leave with something and not just, you know, have like, you know, come in, do your workshop and then I get the credit for it. And then the institution looks great. But then the kid is like, even though he has the experience, it's like, OK, can we give him something else? That's so cool. Yeah, that that's I hadn't really thought about that before of how. Yeah. Yeah. And it's free. It's easily like you can guide them virtually. You can guide them, um, you know, just send back and forth drafts. It's not very difficult. So but, you know, and they're ambitious and they have the motivation. So that's, you know, just just I think cater to that, you know, cater to that love and just foster it. We also find like and just from experience is that mentees like trainees, you're not always going to have an ally as a, as a mentor, you know, so your recommendation letters may be very different for each trainee. And so we, and we know by experience and just from reading um, the literature that minoritized trainees don't get as strong of recommendation letters as people who can like, sort of like the majority with the majority, you know, type of thing. Um, So, and I think with the publication is something that speaks for itself. Um, And that's another reason why I I sort of pushed it. It really was just to um, give the leg up for these kids and have them go back and just, it really does help their self-esteem because, you know, you you hear them say, okay, like, oh, I'm about to tell my friends, I just published in a journal, you know, Um, so that, it just it, it's just all around it's a great thing yeah is that the sort of thing you know if people listening or even me to get involved with that to be sort of like a reviewer just wherever you are yeah you can <laughs> so you can be a reviewer you can open up a chapter at an NYU so like if you wanted to you can even start the same program um it doesn't have to be Boston it could be anywhere and you know it's, it's just because the, the publishing in the journal is free it's not you know, they don't have to pay anything. Yeah. Um, it's just they have to, and it doesn't have to be novel. It just has to be a testable hypothesis and they have to have data. Um, and they have to make sense of that data and they need someone to navigate, like help them navigate that that stuff. So um, you can be a reviewer. You can also be an editor. You can, you know, it's a, it's a we get graduate students from all over, from Tufts, from, um, I think Duke, UNC, like all over. That is so awesome. That's, that's really exciting. Um, cool. We do always like to end interviews on just kind of a fun get to know you note. Um, so, you know, what what do you like to do, um, you know, just for fun to relax or to unwind? Um, so I actually we have a pet lizard. And so one of the things I love to do, we have a bearded dragon is oh actually gosh. to watch TV with the bearded with our like watch movies, actually, with our bearded dragon. And it's just funny because <laughs> does it watch it? <laughs> yeah, it watches it and it has these like really funny um, exp- like not facial expression, but like body expressions, like, it'll, you know, I'll wave its arm if it likes it. So it's just really entertaining to, to, to see, you know, and it's my daughter's lizard, but, um, but that's like, I think just watch, just like seeing my, my kids like really enjoy, you know, having fun with, with their pets and also being around us while watching movies is fun. 
Um, the other thing I like running, I think so whenever I get anxious and I have, you know, problem, like problems, meaning like I can't figure out what to do first, I'll go for a run and then I'll come back and I'll have an answer for, it. I don't know how that happens, but <laughs> I feel similarly. I also running clears my head. It's wild. <laughs> if you're stressed out about like a few things, it's like when you go running, you come back, you already know like how to prioritize and how to structure like, yeah. what you're going to do first. Um, the other thing that I do for fun is listen, like listen, like travel or, you know, to usually like maybe downtown, <laughs> you know, to go to like a salsa dancing club or, or something or reggaeton club. Um, but yeah, but that's about that. Yeah, I'm pretty boring. <laughs> oh, hardly that. I feel like you need multiple things in addition to your extensive science and advocacy work and being a mom. <laughs> yeah, far from boring. <laughs> like caretaker. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Well, thank you so much for, you know, putting me in this, like involving me in your project uh, initiative. It's been amazing. This was super fun. So it was great talking to you, Caroline. And well, thank you very much. <laughs>